Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's give a special shout-out to our guest super producer, Tari Harrison. You ready? Let's do this. Tari, Tari, she's filling in for the max. Yeah, Tari, it's Tari. She's really awesome, yeah. Woo. Thanks for covering me while I was off, Tari. Enjoy time off, and I enjoy you helping me out. So here's a song as a thank you. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Who you may recognize ah. from R- Ridiculous News. <laughs> and uh, check out Ridiculous News if you haven't done so yet. Uh, I'm Ben, you're Noel, and people can hear us on Ridiculous News. We also had the creators of the show, Mark and Bill, on. We should have them back on again. You know what? We should have Ridiculous Crime and Ridiculous Romance back on at some point. That's for sure. I'm still waiting for my invitation to be on Ridiculous News. What? I thought you were on there. Nah, man. Tari, I need you to feel the strength of the side eye. I know I know you could see it. <laughs> bordering, on, <laughs> bordering on an evil eye. Which we discussed in a secret project for a different show that we'll tell you about hopefully very soon. I, I don't know, Halloween-ish maybe? Halloween-esque time? Mm-hmm. Circa Halloween? Yeah. Sure. Well, well, speaking of resentment and uh, b- mm-hmm. boiling, simmering rage, uh, just kidding, it's cool. I love those guys. Uh, it's okay if they never want to have me on. I'll, I'll, I'll be fine with that, but uh, I will also die a little inside. So please take note. Really want to be on Ridiculous News. Love the show. Uh, we are today talking about a, uh, a very specific type of resentment that comes along with feeling as though you are being replaced. Uh, we're sort of in a situation with that right now in, in the country, in the world, where technology is starting to creep in and replace jobs uh, that were once, you know, largely occupied by human people. Things like checkout kiosks at stores and, you know, even the idea of AI coming in and replacing the work of graphic designers, you know, with some of these uh, open, you know, uh, Dolly uh, AI kind of images or mid-journey. You know, there's a lot of um, unease in the art community around the idea of uh, being able to just enter some text and generate an image uh, that technically is plumbing the depths of the work of other artists that is available on the internet to kind of create this simulacrum of art. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are talking about kind of the earliest days of this concept, the idea of skilled workers feeling, not just feeling, you know, scared, but but genuinely being sacked because uh, they their jobs were no longer required due to advancements in technology during the Industrial Revolution. 
Yeah. Now, this one is of a special interest to me uh, and to you, I believe, as well as our research associate, uh, the one and only Zach Williams, who, again, you'll meet very soon in an upcoming episode. You may have heard someone call someone else a Luddite, like, or you may he hear someone explain um, a, their relationship with a the technology they don't get, right? Like, hey guys, sorry, I had a tough time with this Adobe product or this DocuSign. I'm kind of a Luddite. But it's used, uh, it, it's weird because it's kind of like those same way people say, you're a Philistine. There's a story behind these terms. And it's a story that um, we think a lot of people don't fully realize. Uh, the Luddites, as you so beautifully set us up here uh, to explore, Noel, they were a real people. And when I say people, I don't mean like a um, a nation. It's a real community of people. And around the turn of 1800, our story begins. The textile industry in the United Kingdom. It's a huge, huge deal. As a matter of fact, in the north of the UK around this time, a ton of people in one way or another worked in the textile industry. And it was partially still a cottage industry, right? People were working from home, literally in their cottages, and they were doing time-intensive labor by hand. They were making stockings. Uh, cotton spinners were creating yarn. And I think uh, one group that's particularly interesting to us today would be the croppers. Uh, they take these large sheets of, of this woven wool fabric, and then they clean it up. They trim off the rough surface so it's all nice and smooth. Yeah, like a nice, soft, cozy blanking. To back up one half-inch bed, where, at what point do you think the concept of spinning a yarn uh, became a euphemism for telling a story? Oh, that's a great question. And we see this pretty often, not just in English, but in other, other languages. A description of a physical act becomes a uh, <laughs> a figurative thing. It becomes an idiom or a turn of phrase, right? Like, uh, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get there. You know, uh, <laughs> I I don't know. I guess it would say um, I, I had heard, weirdly enough, that it came from nautical slang. Well, it also reminds me of the idea of spinning a story from whole cloth. The idea of making mm. something up from scratch, you know, or that would be yeah. considered, you know, telling a lie, uh, which sometimes a story can just be a very uh, theatrical lie. But I love the idea of you're taking what essentially is raw material and you're turning it into something of beauty, which I think is a very appropriate, uh, you know, uh, metaphor for telling a story. But uh, sorry, I just wanted to get that out of the way. You know, I'm always uh, hung up on these little things. So this was a very important job. These croppers, the ones that you were describing as kind of trimming the the, the, the fabric and making it really, really smooth and soft. Um, they had to be muscular folks because they had to like, you know, use these big kind of um, heavy pieces of machinery to guide them across the fabric to get these, you know, this, these trimmings done. They also were incredibly well paid because mm. they, they did have to have a special set of skills like Liam Neeson style. Um, and therefore they commanded a significant amount of control over their work life. There was uh, something that we have completely come to take for granted uh, or take for not granted because we don't have it is the work-life balance. This was a very important thing. They had holidays built in. They even took Mondays off so they could get drunk they called it Saint Monday. It was, yeah, bizarre. And then this is all like kind of, they were able to demand this even before the time of unions. There, there may have been, you know, a guild, which would have probably had some kind of collective bargaining power, you know, or at least what would kind of be the equivalent of that back in those days. But they were able to really get a lot of, of, of perks. Yeah, yeah. And they were, they were known throughout the industry and the country as being the least manageable of any employed people. Uh, this started to become a problem in the first 10 years of the 1800s. The textile industry was in trouble. There was a decade of war with Napoleon that had halted trade and again, an interesting parallel to today and the looming supply chain crisis 
the cost of food and everything you could buy, the cost of living in general, is going up pretty significantly. Also, the textile industry is inherently part of the fashion industry, and fashion, as we know, is fickle. Check out our episodes on fashions of yesteryear. Uh, Men began wearing a different type of clothing. They started rocking these things called trousers, which were spelled T-R-O-W-S-E-R-S at the time, which meant demand for stockings plummeted. And the merchant class, the folks who, you know, make their vig off of paying hosiers and croppers and then weavers and then selling the finished product, they had to figure out a way to contain these rising costs. So the first thing they did was attempt to reduce wages while at the same time bringing in ding, 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 new improved technology, new, new, kinds, of, uh, new kinds of rigs, new processes, uh, in particular, what, one thing called a gig mill. And a gig mill would let a single person crop wool much, much more quickly than the old methods. You know, it reminds me of this great Mitchell and Webb sketch about the, um, what is it, the uh, Stone Age entering the Bronze Age. Did you ever see that one? I don't think I saw that one. I love those guys, but uh, definitely haven't seen every every bit of their show. I'll send it to you after this. Uh, also, sometimes, folks, uh, peek behind the ridiculous curtain. It is not uncommon for us to pause recording and <laughs> watch things that we send to each other. But we're we're being pros today, so we're gonna we're gonna, I'll I'll just send it to you after work. But but it'll Solid. be worth it. Solid, yes. So this this other stuff they do, man. They uh, these the merchant class. They have these new frames, wide stocking frames. And these stocking frames will let a weaver produce stockings six times faster than before. To me, there's a question for me here, though. If stockings are already going out of fashion, I guess there's still some sort of demand, but it seems like maybe not the most productive thing to make the product people don't want six times faster. Yeah, I guess it would have been what they would have referred to as their woolens, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. um, I think possibly a combination of uh, defenses against the cold, but also I think they were probably really popular um, in puritanical sets, you know? The the idea of making sure that your your legs were covered and and all of that good stuff, um, you know, if you were were a woman. Um, But yeah, it was veering out of that more puritanical territory and into the enlightenment essentially right i mean that's where we were heading well they they did this you know they did something that really lays down the precedent for a lot of uh worker employer tensions in the modern day with if we look at the specifics here of this stocking change then what would happen is Instead of weaving an entire stocking around by hand, you produce this big sheet of hosiery, basically stocking material. Uh, You cut it up and then you would put it together. The problem was the quality just wasn't there. These cut up stockings would fall apart quickly, but you didn't need highly skilled, highly trained workers to make them. And the merchants don't care. We're also, uh, we owe a shout out to Clive Thompson over at the Smithsonian because he wrote a fantastic article about this. Yeah, with a really great headline too. When robots take all of our jobs, remember the Luddites, as we were talking about kind of at the top of the show. Uh, this is not an, a brand new concept, this concern of, of being replaced, you know, by uh, a machine. And certainly these were not, uh, quote unquote, smart machines, but technology in and of itself, uh, Ben, as, as you often like to say, I can't remember who exactly the quote is from, but uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Arthur C. Clarke um, you know, in a certain context is indistinguishable from magic. So, um, you have this 
very powerful force. Um, let's call it, you know, technological magic that's sweeping in and replacing the job of, of several individuals. Um, and this is not, this is not, this is not going unnoticed. I mean, this is, you know, again, we had these, these, these croppers that were occupying a very kind of privileged position in the workforce. Um, they were able to, to get these demands met, you know, all their vacation time and then their perks and their pay. And now all of a sudden, well, we don't need you anymore, or at least we don't need as many of you. Yeah, no longer in the catbird seat. Uh, the merchant's cost-cutting gambit actually works out for them or appears to for a time. We owe a nod of thanks to Kevin Benfield, an English professor at Murray State University, uh, and a guy who actually is the editor of Writings of the Luddites, which is an excellent work on this time period and this movement. So. Professor Benfield notes that the lace workers, the knitters, the you name it of the textile industry realize things are in decline, in big part because of the supply chain problems and inflation due to the war. But they also see that people aren't worried as much about quality. These folks who are experts in their field have been, uh, this might sound familiar to some of our fellow friends who worked from home during the pandemic, these individuals watched as their work was moved from the houses where they lived to these big factories that would house cotton weaving machines. And the workers started to protest, rabble, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. And they said, you know what? You guys are making lower quality stuff. And several of them said, you know what, I am down to clown as long as I make a, a little bit of this profit too. But no, I, I get the feeling history will show us they weren't getting uh, profit sharing from this. Of course they weren't, because that's that's how, you know, scaling and, and industrialization works. You know, you take what was once a cottage industry, perhaps a skill passed down from generations, you know, from, from mother to daughter, you know, the, the art of lace making. Very, uh, very subtle and bespoke kind of work that goes into that. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're doing it on, in, on this, this grand scale in this massive factory with unskilled workers. And understandably, you know, you would see that uh, if you were one of those skilled workers, and this was a very important part of your upbringing and, and your family heritage or whatever it might be, uh, you're going to take that really personally. Um, it's the same as, you know, the kind of commodification of any art form. It takes the magic out of it. It kind of takes the the heart and the soul out of it. And sure, industrialists and, you know, um, corporate bigwigs, they're not so concerned about the quality as they are about the quantity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so these artisans try to head things off at the pass. <laughs> Another phrase that was literal and became figurative. Uh, or, you know, they say, maybe we can slow it. Maybe we can make this a smooth transition over time. So they looked for stuff like workers' pensions, a new step in uh, the world of workers' rights. And the factory owners didn't want to play ball. So kind of like unions that have been in pretty tense, sometimes hostile negotiations with companies in the U.S. today, the factory owners said, no, we're not doing it. And that's where the Luddite movement emerges. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know. I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it so. Uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. These attempts at negotiation fail. The workers aren't being listened to. Their concerns aren't being addressed. We can also give you a little bit of political context, larger context, just so you know how bad things are at this time. Thousands of people in the UK, not just in this industry, are suffering from chronic hunger, what we call food insecurity today. And there were these laws passed by parliament called combination laws. Combination laws were directly aimed against collective action by textile workers. It's kind of like if Congress passed a law specifically aimed at, um, I don't know, podcasters or something like that. It's weirdly specific. Yeah, and just, just to backtrack on something that I said earlier, um, you know, in, in terms of the croppers being able to get all of these demands met, all of these, you know, uh, privileges in terms of their vacation and their pay and all that. Um, the first, a lot of stuff was happening around this time. Uh, in yeah. 1860, the first union, the first recorded union, trade union, was established, the London Trades Council, this is in the UK anyway, the London Trades Council, uh, which was founded in 1816. And then um, a little bit later, the uh, the Trades Union Congress in 1868. But Ben, when was this combination law passed? Because I'm trying to, there's a lot of like uh, upheaval, you know, um, the French Revolution was not far off uh, from, from here. The Industrial Revolution encompasses a lot of this and the Enlightenment period. There's a lot of overlap here. The combination, so there are a series of combination laws, I believe. Um, for example, one is the Combination Act of 1799 that 
explicitly outlaws unions. And obviously, that doesn't stick around forever because, as you said, the, this union forms in uh, in the 1860s later. So Luddites go underground. They go clandestine. They start organizing in secret. This is one of the most cool work meetings you could imagine, but it's also a very desperate series of meetings. People are unable to feed their families. And we, we I, this is not meant as that convenient term that politicians uh, trot out every election day. They're literally not able to feed their families. And they say, you know what? This is going to take everybody. If you we are not a male-only organization, women workers get involved, child laborers, which were still very much a thing, you're part of this movement too. Uh, eventually, women and children formed something around 40% of the Luddite membership, which was very progressive for its time, despite, you know, child labor. Yeah, highly recommend a cool article called The Future Encyclopedia of Luddism by Miriam A. Cherry. Uh, you can find that on thereader.mitpress.mit.edu. Um, really, really great uh, resource for all kinds of fantastic historical, I guess, journalism. Mm, yeah, and... And this is, okay, so what they're doing now uh, is not the same stuff that you would see a group of workers do in a more ostensibly democratic society. They're not necessarily just doing protest. You know what I mean? In, starting in 1811, which is the first year of some really intense Luddite activity, so they do have a peaceful gathering near the Exchange Hall in Nottingham, and that doesn't stay peaceful because later they attack these wide knitting frames in a nearby shop in a village called Arnold. And the month before that, stockingers, which were framework knitters, broke into shops and removed uh, various components of knitting frames that made them useless and incredibly dangerous to use if you tried. This attack on March 11th, 1811, is, as far as we can tell, the first time the name Lud was used, right? So Luddite yeah, would be follower of Lud? That's right, yeah. Like, it, was, it was this kind of symbolic figure, this, this idea of a, of a general, uh, someone leading the charge, but I don't think it was actually a real person, right? It's, okay, so it's still kind of dodgy. Today in 2022, as we record, the movement was said pretty often to be named after a guy named Ned Ludd, an apprentice who smashed some stocking frames in 1779. So people associated this figure with the destruction of machines. But later it turned out that Ned Ludd was a totally fictional character. He was a story people told themselves. And then, as you pointed out, later this develops into a more uh, fleshed out kind of character, synonymous with the cause. General Ludd or King Ludd is sort of like the Uncle Sam of this movement. We need you to join the croppers. Mm -hmm. um, and that's essentially what happened. It was this kind of concerted effort to organize and uh, almost create what we might today consider um, acts of industrial Sabotage, right? Yes. I mean, the, this is bigger than just people that don't like machines or cannot computer. These are people who are resentful to the point of, you know, violence of these new developments uh, because they are directly impacting their ability to feed their families. Yeah. Yeah. They, they said, look, you're making crappy material. And secondly, you're employing people who have not completed their seven-year apprenticeship. Uh, this, uh, those folks that you might call scabs today were called cults back then, C-O-L-T-S. And so there are more and more attacks. There were several weeks of almost nightly attacks. They were all successful. No one was caught or arrested. And that kind of implies that the common person was on the side of the Luddites. Things go a little quiet in summer, but then there's a bad harvest in November. 
And this is where we see, um, I don't know, this is where it gets it gets sticky because we've established that General Ludd is sort of a, a, a semi-fictional character, right? So this is where we go back to uh, the article cited earlier by Miriam A. Cherry. They started in November of 1811 surrounding and holding factories throughout the textile district of Nottinghamshire. And I'm so sorry, uh, fellow UK friends and ridiculous historians. I, I, my tongue is tripping over Nottinghamshire. Is it Nottinghamshire? Nottinghamshire. Well, I think it's, I think the Shire, you could say it as just Nottingham or Nottinghamshire. Uh, the, the, okay. the, and I only say sheer because that's how they say it in A Day in the Life, the Beatles song. They say mm -hmm. uh, 10,000 holes in Blackford, Lancashire. So I think that might be a colloquial pronunciation, but I think Nottingham and Nottinghamshire are the same thing. I think it's just like a a little extra oomph. But I th it's no uh, accident that there are all these militaristic terms being used. You know, we do know that there was a real person named George Meller who took on the, you know, military leadership title of lieutenant and was described as being General Ludd's right-hand man. But, but again, like you said, a lot of the details around Ludd and his identity are a little bit sketchy. But this was war, Ben. They, they surrounded uh, a textile district and they literally held position in these factories. Um, and they won at Cartwright Mill at Rawfolds is now to this day the site of the Meller Memorial Museum um, where you can see lots of documentation pertaining to the Luddite movement. Again, read this article by Cherry uh, in the MIT Press. It's fantastic. If you ever find yourself there, I'm sure this would be a great visit. Um, but essentially, you know, while the Luddites do get a bit of a rap as being these kind of almost at least terrorists in, in a sense, uh, at least, you know, again, one person's freedom fighters, another person's terrorists. Uh, it started off as a peaceful movement. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the early campaigns were successful because of that pacifist nature. They were largely a p peaceful movement. And when the press which was owned by the powers that be, when the press was describing these factory occupations, they were trying to make it seem more militaristic and perhaps violent than it actually was. But we see that things did escalate. Uh, the common people are with them. The press is against them. The ownership class is certainly against them. Some of these attacks used sledgehammers and the factory owners, as far as we could tell, were the first to produce firearms and fire upon protesters. The workers were hoping that they could essentially create such a stink that there would be a ban on weaving machines. But the British government doubled down. Instead, they made breaking machines a crime punishable by death. Dang. Yeah, I know. Imagine the death penalty for, uh, you know, what you would maybe consider just plain old vandalism. I mean, it doesn't remind me, it, it doesn't strike me as being too different from allowing uh, the idea of personhood to corporations. You know what I mean? It really shows where our priorities are, like uh, in terms of like, you know, um, commerce uh, is, is that, uh, no, no, these machines... Uh, are every bit as as valuable and uh, and have have as much of a right to live as human beings do. In fact, I would argue more of a right to live because the machines themselves are causing the death, the deaths and starvation and and displacement of actual human people. So you can almost argue that the government is assigning more value um, to the machines than they are to to the human beings themselves by you know making the, the destruction of these machines a crime worthy of the death penalty. It's nuts. It's nuts. I, I don't even think it's an argument. That's totally what they're doing. It is a profits over people kind of situation. And then, you know, from the other side of this argument, the business owners 
would probably say, well, why are you restricting my freedom to make a more successful business? The economy is tough. It's a tale as old as time. So it might be strange to realize, after all the stuff we're describing, folks, that in the first two years of the Luddite campaign, you know, when things really pop off in 1811 to 1812, there's only one serious injury we know of, and that is a guy named William Horsfall, or Horsfall. He's the owner of the Ottowell's Mill. He refuses to stand down when a crowd of protesters gathers outside his factory. And then he he says, this is not funny because, you know, it's people's lives. But, uh, you know, in response to their demands and protests, uh, Horsfall says, I plan to swim in Luddite blood. And he fires his rifle out into the crowd, which is mostly unarmed. Uh, and he's composed please. again of a, a lot of child workers. Uh, this guy that we introduced earlier, Lieutenant Mellor, he fires a single shot and he's thinking, I'm going to wing this guy on the arm. But instead, he shoots him in his junk and yeah. shoots it right in the groin. Oof. Not on purpose. Apparently. No, no, he really was just trying to wing him, but instead he, he dinged him. Hmm? Yeah, there we go. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's, I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it so uh the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. 
They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So at this point, essentially, there was something of a surrender, right? Yeah, yeah. They uh, take over the factory without further incident. Um, there were some people in the ruling class who were on board with the Luddites. Lord Byron wrote a poem about it called Song for the Luddites. And he mentions the character of King Ludd or General Ludd or Ned Ludd. And this is, again, this kind of the Uncle Sam for them. Uh, this is the leader who exists as a man of mystery, right? His powers are as pervasive as his enigmatic nature. No one really knows who he is. No one knows where he's at or where he'll strike. Maybe this is propaganda. I believe you could make a strong case that it is. But no, this propaganda works. The forces of law and order are kind of spooked by this guy. And they start obsessing over finding Ned Ludd. And, uh, well, like we, we kind of spoiled the lead. There was no Ned Ludd. This was a, a made-up thing. We talked about the story. He became a symbolic leader. He became a folk hero in Nottingham, which, you know, has a past with folk leaders. Shout out Robin Hood. Uh, and there's, there's actually a verse we found that compares the two. Uh, do, how do you feel about a dramatic reading, Mr. Brown? Absolutely. I just wanted to add, too, it really reminds me of V for Vendetta, the idea oh, that yeah. you can't kill an idea. You can't mm -hmm. kill, you know, something that's bigger than a man or, you know, an individual. Guevara, shoot mm -hmm. fool, you're only killing a man. That's yeah. exactly right. And, and this, is, this is how these kind of movements really do get into the hearts and minds of, of people and, uh, and can actually, uh, you know, potentially overturn the status quo. It's not through violence, it's through the spread of ideas and, uh, you know, kind of changing people's minds. But yeah, let's, let's do this dramatic reading. It's so good. Chant no more your old rhymes about bold Robin Hood. His feats I but little admire. I will sing the achievements of General Ludd, now the hero of Nottinghamshire. See, now this this tells us how you pronounce it. This is the rhyme. Shire. And Shire. There we go. We solved it. Dum dum. Uh, shout out to Casey on the case. I miss you. So this Luddite revolt, which we can call it now, spreads to Yorkshire during 1812, then to Lancashire. And as this movement expands, it starts to fragment a little bit. Differing trades join in with differing priorities, right? Uh, and you may find that the tenants of the Luddite movement in one part of the country are different from the tenants of the movement in another region. It also became more violent as it grew in size and picked up momentum. They started setting uh, mills on fire, so it went from occupation to arson, uh, and then they started firing back at the guards of factories and mills and at the, at the law that was set upon them. In 1812, four Luddites die. And this, this sort of changes the tenor. So I want to step back. Let me clarify. The, the initial parts of the movement, the initial phases and that year, 1811, those were largely peaceful. Our real inflection point is uh, around this time of April uh, 1812. Yeah, and, it, and, you know, it just goes to show how history remembers things. You know, the term Luddite typically conjures images of people smashing stuff up, you know, if you're even remotely familiar with the actual history of it. If you're not, uh, it's just typically, like you said, thrown around just to describe someone that um, isn't very good at using technology. Doesn't necessarily hate it or want it to be exploded, but it usually just, like, like, like Philistines describing someone that doesn't have much taste, 
or is culturally like not very refined. But again, the actual history of that is much more complex than what it is ultimately kind of boiled down to over time. Maybe we do. You know what? We're just going to have to do an etymology show at some point. It's, oh, God, yeah. Etymology for the people. No, yeah. idiomatic for the people. Idiomatic Etymolo- for the people. We need them back. We it's need kind of the same deal. The boys back. We can do that. So as we said, uh, things are getting violent. The factory owners are much more influential in the government because they have much more money. And eventually the government sends 14,000 soldiers into areas with a lot of Luddite activity. The Luddites have to battle the British army. Uh, The government also tries to suppress things and infiltrate the group with spies. There's this terrible crackdown. Um, We mentioned the death penalty for breaking specific types of weaving machines. And by winter of 1812, the government is winning. The organization has been infiltrated. In just 15 months, 24 different members of the Luddite movement are hanged as public examples, including a 16-year-old boy who cried out for his mom just before he was hanged, in case you're wondering who I think the bad guys are in this story. Yeah, making an example, you know, of them um, after putting them in the position where they needed to organize in this way. What what else did they have at this point? You know, they were not allowed to unionize. They were completely robbed of the only, you know, skill set they have, which that is an investment of time and, and, and history, you know, and, and just generational knowledge. And to all of a sudden just have that like totally, yanked out from under you and then to not have any what, what are you supposed to do just starve die i don't under, i mean it's just it's cruel history and the history of um industrialization and uh and, and commerce it can be so cruel yeah yeah and it's hard work not for nothing is it called the labor movement these hangings are uh, the result of some real kangaroo court type show trials. Actually, not to be too on the nose, two dozen folks were sent up the river in the UK to prison, and then 51 were given the sentence of transportation, meaning after their kangaroo court, they were physically shipped to Australia. This is effective. This is some real scorched earth stuff the British government is doing. By 1813, the uh, looks like the heyday of the Luddites is on the way out. A few years later, the group essentially vanished. And this doesn't mean it's the end of conflict between workers and owner classes. Uh, very much not the case. You can hear about the Luddites today. You hear echoes of the fight against being replaced by machines in um in labor movements today, in threats of union strikes. Like right now, the nation, the United States, is rightly concerned about uh, a possible industry-wide rail strike. And right now, if nobody, if if you don't think trains are that important, folks, and you haven't checked out stuff they don't want you to know, another show we do, uh, realize that in the modern day, 30% of everything you buy is transported on rail at some point. And that is going to, ooh, that when the stuff hits that fan, the stuff is going to spread. You know what I mean? You've heard about this, right? I have, I have. And it also, you know, I think the bigger issue here too is that when you have these large-scaled kind of operations that don't require specialized skills, um, you're 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 not going to command as high a wage uh, because they're going to hire a lot of people for a low wage, and they're technically replaceable. You know, and again, this is no ding on any individual like Amazon warehouse worker, or you know, um, there certainly are varying degrees of skills required for different kind of industrial type jobs. Like you know, you couldn't just walk into a car plant, like an automotive plant, and just know what you were doing. But there are certain jobs that are seen as being replaceable. Like, for example, Starbucks trying to unionize, Starbucks workers trying to unionize. And in the eyes of the management, they might say, well, 
you know, th- these are entry level jobs. These are jobs that are for, you know, young people that anyone could come off the street and make a latte or whatever. Uh, I'm not saying that's the case, but that's the perception. And so the idea of unionizing when you are seen as replaceable is even more challenging. And the bigwigs and the corporations are more um, interested in busting that now than they ever have been, you know, or at least as interested. Um, we, we've seen all kinds of, you know, union uh, busting tactics uh, employed by, you know, uh, Starbucks and, and Amazon and things like that. Uh, it's technically illegal to do that. But mm. if you're wealthy and powerful enough, there are always ways around it. Yeah, well said. And it's a struggle that continues today. The idea of being caught beneath the thumb of powerful interests, being swept away by the tide of technological innovation, it's a common theme, and it's not going to go away in the future. Uh, Like we always point out, history is much closer than it might appear in your rearview mirror. And with that, I think we're we're going to call it a day. We've got some exciting stuff ahead. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, uh, but we do want to say a very, very special thanks to our guest super producer, Tari Harrison. Uh, Tari, I am sure you are frantically uh, writing an email to Bill and Mark about their uh, their their egregious egregious lack of transgression. Uh, no- the, uh, yeah, this, uh, what is it, will, shall not stand? This no, something? this aggression will not stand, no. Yeah, yeah, it's okay, get, get Watch Noel, out, uh, of the show. Yeah, and uh, also thanks, of course, to Max Williams, who is on a uh, well-deserved vacation. I've uh, I've just been texting memes at times. Uh, we're waiting for some out-of-context pictures from his journeys. He'll be returning soon. Uh, let's see, who else, who else, who else? Oh, Christopher Asiotis, obviously, here in spirit. Oh, yeah. Soon to yeah. be here in the flesh. That's, that's happening. I think we, we finally twist his arm to get that USB mic ordered. Yeah, that's true. We did kind of muscle in on the poor guy. We, uh, what they call, buttonhold him. But, this is uh, how we but, get things done. We, we make idle threats. <laughs> never, never you will have me on your sports. podcast. Or I will <laughs> smash your loom. Yeah, and, you know, we, we've we still got our vision board thing going on. That's been making some progress. Obviously. Uh, thank, yeah, thanks, of course, to uh, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. Uh, thanks to Yves Jeffcoat. Thanks to Anna Hosnier. Thanks to, well, now I feel like we're just award speeching. We got everybody. Like thank God. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, I'll, go, the I'll go Kanye. I'd like to thank me. Yeah, you you, you did this, man. You did this. Oh, you did it. You did it. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.